Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. There's a sit-in taking place tomorrow at the Hamilton Police Services Board meeting to protest the recent city appointment to the board. The Green Party is looking for the province to restore funding to brownfield restoration. And also, is Burlington City Council going to stand their ground on the development freeze? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There will be a sit-in taking place tomorrow at the Hamilton Peace Services Board meeting, which of course is held at uh, Hamilton City Council Chambers, uh, to protest the recent city appointment. Critics say the appointment was a missed opportunity to uh, increase diversity. Boy, we've had this discussion for the longest time here at the city. Uh, Clearly it didn't resonate with the selection committee, I guess. Uh, Cameron Kretsch is a former council candidate for Ward 2 and a community leader and a community member. Uh, he'll be there. He's right here now. He's joining us on the CHML Bill Kelly Show. Cameron, great to have you here. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about your concern about this. Uh, and uh, I, I know I've talked to a number of people about this, and uh, we, you know we've had this discussion about diversity and about the city council trying to reflect that in some of the decisions they make. Uh, with that in mind, were you surprised by their decision for the citizen member? Truthfully, I wasn't surprised, um, but I was disappointed. I know that recently the city talked a lot about using an equity, diversity, and inclusion lens when making decisions at the city, and I expected that perhaps this might be the first opportunity for them to do so. Uh, I didn't think they did, and I was pretty disappointed by that. My understanding is that there are a number of people that applied for this job. I know one or two of them myself, but apparently there are a large number. So it's not as if, well, we don't have a whole lot to pick from here. There were options, and apparently, from what I'm told, some of the people that had gone through this process and made application for this were reflective of some of the diversity elements that we talked about. Definitely. I know there are people who have applied more than one time and uh, attempting to sit on the board, and... It's not, it doesn't appear that those interviews were very long, very detailed, very thorough, and people walked away from that feeling like they weren't really given a fair shot. Well, that, that's that's frustrating in and of itself. Uh, that you know they got an interview, but they figured, well, maybe we're just going through the motions here. And you have to wonder sometimes if uh, if people have already made up their mind. And I, I've you've heard me talk about this, Cameron, on the program before. That there there can be sometimes where where you know the selection committee, which is made up of city councilors, by the way. Uh, pretty much has a predetermined idea who they want to have on certain boards and agencies. And that's uh, I'm not saying it happens all the time, but the fact that it happens every now and then can be a very frustrating experience. I can't speak to whether or not they had pre-selected someone in advance, but I think that this was a huge missed opportunity to echo what Evelyn Myrie said when she was in the phone, uh, speaking with you previously. Mm-hmm. This was a chance for the city to do something positive with respect to policing and underrepresented and marginalized communities, to have someone there with a voice at the table who could provide input that I think has been missing for a long time, and they chose not to do that. Well, there are a couple of elements to this, Cameron, and I'm glad you brought that other part of it up. This is not just a matter of making it a citizen appointment. Uh, that in and of itself, uh, you'd like to think that it was going to be done through the lens that you've just described. But this is a very important decision. This is a, an appointment to the Police Services Board, um, and there have been some concerns about policing and about you know the, the inclusion in this community. I know police are doing their best to try to reach out to this, but the board itself uh, probably should be a lot more reflective of the community. And uh, I, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm stymied as to why they actually made the decision. And this is not a reflection on the individual that they picked. I'm sure he's a wonderful individual, a wonderful human being, 
uh, and I'm sure he'll be a good board member. But uh, I, I agree with you. This was an opportunity lost. Yeah, this certainly is a comment on the candidate they chose. But I think that beyond it being a missed opportunity, um, it's a paid position. So one of the things about a paid position is I think it does require them to pay a little more attention to the selection process to ensure they're following the laws in the province of Ontario when they're making these selection processes, when they're hiring people to do these things. That's part of it. It's also the only opportunity that we have as a community to have a citizen representative on the Hamilton Police Services Board. As you know, the board is made up of three appointees by the province and three appointees by uh, obviously made up of city council themselves, right? So mm-hmm. city councillors. So we don't have the opportunity to have anybody else speak from the community except for in this one role. So it's that much more important, I think, that this process is taken seriously and that people get it right. Have you had an opportunity to talk to anybody on council? I haven't had a chance to talk to anybody on council. I did send a two-page letter in um, to council as a correspondence about this issue, sort of detailing my comments, and haven't heard back if it's going to be on the agenda for council tomorrow or not. Or today, sorry, pardon me, at 5 o'clock. Yeah, they uh, they were rather blasé with some of the comments. I know when, when this first started, the day I was talking to Evelyn about this on the program, uh, some of the councillors just simply said, well, it's a confidential process. Well, that's I, I, that's not good enough. I think they need to be a little more transparent and a little more open about exactly what they did and why they did it. There's absolutely nothing wrong with them going through a selection process publicly. What I mean by that is not maybe having interviews in public, but making it clear what the process is to the public, right? having it laid out, how long are interviews, how many interviews are there, how many candidates are we interviewing, these kinds of basic facts that tell us um, what's happening and give communities confidence that the process is being taken seriously. So what do you want to do at the meeting tomorrow? How's this going to be, go down? What do you, there's Obviously, uh, you've sent the word out. I've seen a lot of social media on this right now, and, uh, and clearly you want to get some representation uh, in the galleries for tomorrow. Yeah, the goal is to have a peaceful protest for people to come out and just let council know, let the uh, Hamilton Police Services Board know that people aren't happy with the decision that was made. And that's that's primarily the goal, is to get people filling up the gallery, seated there, uh, and making that point to the board. Uh, hashtag representation matters, if you want to follow this on Twitter. It's, uh, it's something that I think we need to have a discussion about here in this community. Uh, it's it's got to be frustrating. I know it is from my part, Cameron, to, to know that we've had these discussions. We've talked to city councillors about this. we talked to a number of candidates uh, that we're running for city council, and I know it came up an awful lot uh, during debates uh, as, as the, the run-up to the, the municipal election from a few months ago. Uh, you've got to wonder how many more times we have to bring it up before it starts to resonate with council. Yeah, it is surprising to me. As a queer person, I find it uh, disturbing that this continues to be a trend. The same thing happened from my perspective in terms of applying you know, equity and diversity and inclusive principles to the hiring for the city manager position. And again, the focus got turned to um, the actual individual themselves. And it's not about that, Bill, so thanks for saying that earlier. It's about the process itself. The process we're using isn't fair, isn't set up with these kinds of things in mind, then it needs to be redone. Um, and it needs to be reviewed. Well, and I made this point a couple of days ago, and maybe we have to keep hammering away at this until it uh, finally does start to stick with some people. Uh, we, meaning the population, the people, the voters in this city, I think made a, a conscious decision when you look at the makeup of this new city council that we were looking for diversity. We were looking for that city council 
to be more reflective of the way this community is and that kind of representation, uh, which is why there were so many new members and, and very diverse members that are on this new council. And that's, I think that's a great thing. I think it was a fabulous, one of the great uptakes of the, the, the whole municipal election campaign. But why can't they show that same sort of thing? In other words, they didn't seem to get the message, the council themselves, that maybe they need to, to do the same sort of thing when they start making decisions like this. I think that's a great point. I think the council has to sit down and be reflective about this, understand that things are changing and moving in a different direction than perhaps they anticipated, and move away from the status quo, evaluate, review their policies and procedures critically, and make decisions that reflect all Hamiltonians. And at this point, I think that's the trouble, right, is that a lot of the systems and policies and procedures are kind of carrying on as they have been, not reflecting the fact that there's been quite a change. What would you like to see happen here? I know this is going to be a silent protest tomorrow, but I'm, I'm guessing at some point, Cameron, you'd like to have some kind of dialogue with some of the members of council about this. Yeah, I think that primarily we need to have this process reviewed and all selection, all selection processes reviewed for committees, boards, and agencies in a public way that reaches out to people in underrepresented and marginalized communities and ensures that they have a voice in the process. I mean, that's one big other thing that was missed here. If you're looking to add diversity to your board, if you're looking to have other voices on your board, reach out to the community. Reach out to those communities and ask them how you can do this work. And so I think a public process like that needs to happen. I would say, too, that there's still an opportunity, as far as I'm concerned, for them to go back to the drawing board and and redo the process and pick somebody else. Um, I don't expect that to happen, but I think the goal here is to draw attention to the matter and get them to review this. That's the, the primary goal here, to make a change. Well, and we've seen this happen. I know police services have talked about this. Uh, the, you know, the chief has mentioned this a number of times when they go for recruitments, for instance. Uh, they make a conscious effort to reach out to, to some of the aspects and some of the elements in this community to try to be reflective. Now, we can have a discussion as to whether or not it's effective and whether or not it's actually helping and enhancing it, but uh, the fact that they're doing it is a good first step. Uh, I don't know that city council is doing that. I know they're sure talking the talk, Cameron, but I don't see them walking the walk here. That's my view as well, and I think I'm a little bit dismayed at the fact that this isn't catching on more because it's not a new problem, right? This isn't something that's come out of nowhere. It's something that we've known about as an issue for decades. There have been widely reported stories of issues between um, Hamilton Police Services and underrepresented and marginalized communities in Hamilton. This isn't something new. And so I find it um, interesting that we're making it seem like it's a really important hot topic at this moment, but it's been a hot topic for a very long time. I hope now, though, that there's enough tension on the matter that there is a change. Well, and, and again, because we need that kind of inclusion on the board, so we have that perspective on the board, because let's face it, this, the, you know, the, the, the Police Services Board does not run Hamilton Police Services. That operational stuff falls totally within the purview of the police themselves. But there are policy decisions that are made. There are, there's a money allotment that can be discussed at these meetings. Uh, this is a pretty heavy agenda, as, as you've seen. I know you've seen some of the meetings in the past. And, and you'd like to think that, that there's going to be a diverse approach to this. Uh, and, and, I, and again, I, I, I'm not trying to shoot down anybody who's there. I'm just saying that city council had an opportunity here to make a statement and do something, and, and they, they dropped the ball. Definitely that this, your comments about the board are really important. So you're right that this isn't about the operational things that are going on there in terms of the board isn't actually physically involved in the operations. However, a board, like in any other organization, sets the tone for the organization, sets its strategic goals, determines its budget, and sets, as you said, all of its procedures and policies. I can't think of anything more impactful. If you want to set the direction of an organization, you get onto the board of that organization to set that direction. And ultimately, you have the final say about what happens. 
So it does have a huge impact on what happens operationally. I also should add that it's not as if there aren't any members on this board who may come from underrepresented or marginalized communities. Um, what the important point here is that this is the one chance that the city has to appoint somebody from the Hamilton community who has the expertise, the education, and the experience. And they, a lot of people apply to have that kind of expertise and experience, right? So I know that there's been commentary out there saying, hey, there's other people on the board already who come from these communities. But this is a chance for Hamilton to pick somebody to represent them. Well, exactly. And, and let's underscore that just so people understand that uh, the citizen appointees, uh, some of them come from the provincial government. That's, the city has very little, probably nothing to do with that. Uh, I'm not so sure that they call and make recommendations, but because it, it's not really part of the process. But this is the one appointment that they do have control over, total control over. Uh, they do the interviews. They make the selection themselves. And uh, so the, the, the other appointees aside, we can have that discussion about whether or not the province is trying to, to reflect some of these values that you just talked about here. But the city certainly should have that message, and the city had an opportunity and still has an opportunity, I think, to talk about this. I, I would like to see an, a, a more of a dialogue. I'd like to see the city council reaching out and talking to some members of this community to understand exactly what some of the concerns are, because it doesn't seem to actually be, be registering with a lot of them. I think that's a really important point, the way you talk about that directionally, Bill. So it does need to be more, and we do need to see more of the city reaching out to meet people where they're at. A lot of what happens now is requests for feedback that take the form of meetings or phone calls or letters or these types of things that not everybody can be there for. Um, they're working. Not everybody can participate in depending uh, on a number of factors. And I think that there does need to be a concerted effort by the city in general to find people, meet them where they're at, and get the feedback from them directly. Now, again, this is going to be tomorrow at the City Council Chambers, but it's for the Police Services Board. This is not for the City Council meeting, correct? Correct. And I think that it's about showing up to the Hamilton Police Services Board to make the statement about the composition of that board. Ultimately, though, of course, that board didn't decide who to appoint to itself, uh, right? It was City Council who made this decision. And that's where the, who the message is being sent to. Well, and the mayor and two members of council, of course, are on that police services board. So, I mean, they'll get the message. But, uh, again, I would like to see some sort of an effort, I think, on the, the city council's part uh, to talk about this. And, and maybe, just like you say, let's sit down and have a discussion about this selection process. Uh, because this is, this is one board. It's a very important board. It's a very important appointment to that board. But there are many, many other opportunities for citizens to partake in, in some of these other boards and agencies. And uh, I, think, I think we need to sit down and talk about just how this is done and how we can make it better. Indeed. And I know that the mayor has talked about an EDI summit that uh, he's planning on having at some point. And I think that how that's composed, how that's rolled out, how that's, um, how that's organized could have a positive impact, right? Um, I'm a little skeptical about the word summit at this point. But there might be an opportunity there to start that dialogue, to set up some working groups of citizens, and to make sure that um, all the values of Hamiltonians are represented. Well, uh, yeah, I guess we can keep our fingers crossed, but we're looking for a little action from the City Council on this. Cameron, thank you so much for the time today. And uh, if people want to get details about this, uh, just uh, show up tomorrow at City Council uh, Chambers for the, uh, the Police Services Board meeting. And we'll see how yeah. that goes. Appreciate your time, though. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Cameron Kretsch, of course, a former municipal candidate and uh, active community member. And we have a lot of active community members 
And uh, I'm glad that they have a voice. And I just hope that, you know, Police Services Board and the City Council listen to those voices. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The budget tomorrow at Queen's Park, of course. And instead of concentrating on what's going to be on our license plates, uh, I, I'm hoping there's going to be a discussion, especially in the budget discussion uh, with uh, Finance Minister Vic Fidelli, about some of the things that really need to be done here. And one of those, of course, is remediation of brownfields. Uh, and to that end, uh, the Green Party is wanting the province to restore funding for brownfield remediation in the budget that will be announced tomorrow. Mike Schreiner, of course, is the leader of the Ontario Green Party and, of course, the MPP for Guelph, joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show to explain this. Mike, thanks for the time. Appreciate you jumping in here again. Hey, my pleasure, Bill. And I, I liked your opening. I think the Premier needs to spend less time thinking about signs, stickers, and slogans and more time on things like housing affordability. Well, I, I get tired. I mentioned it in the last segment. I, I'm, I'm tired of government by slogan. I, I want to see some stuff here and some hard and fast action. And, Mike, this is as good a place as any to start. Uh, this is something that's near and dear. This is one of the, the, the thrusts of when I was on city council years ago here in Hamilton that the city and, and the city council at that time made as a, a, a one of their top priorities. Uh, and the government seemed to have kind of forgotten about this right now, but there's still a lot of work to do. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Hamilton, you, you know, compliments to Hamilton. You've done great work with brownfield remediation. I know the report that came out last summer showed that you've gone from um, 80, 80 sites down to 40, 152 hectares of brownfield down to about 80. And partly it was through the grant program that the city had put forward. Mm-hmm. And it's made a huge difference. I'd like to see that across the province. The McGinty government had brought in a grant program for brownfield remediation, and then they cancel it. makes no sense to me. We, we have issues around housing affordability. We know we, in, we need to increase the supply of housing. We want to do it without building on prime farmland or, you know, the green belt. And brownfield remediation is one way to do it that makes a lot of sense. Well, and there's, there's a couple of factors here. Then, and I know you're going to touch on this uh, with the, the, the media release and hopefully with some debate on this at some point. Uh, is that, uh, the, as you say, there was a program that was in place here for a while, and a lot of people took advantage of this. Uh, just if you want to put this in context, I do know, and I don't know what's gone on since uh, Trump has been president, but I, I, right up until Trump, uh, for the, what, the last 25 years or so, there was a sustainable funding program in the United States for brownfield redevelopment. That, in other words, that cash was there every year for cities. They had to apply for it and say, here's what the project is and here's what we want to do. But it was to assist people and to motivate them to do this. Uh, we, we've got to go right back to that, that square one again and start this. Absolutely. And I've talked to so many developers in my home riding of Guelph in particular, but across the province, who they want to um, redevelop these brownfield sites. I mean, in many communities, it's kind of a blight now, right? And why not turn that into, you know, a, a livable, you know, community that can increase housing supply and particularly affordable housing supply? But it's a huge risk for a developer to take that on. It's a huge expense to take it on. And so having some government support to remediate the brownfields, to make it, to make that land ready for development, and then the developer can come in and, you know, complete the project. And, and if government does it that way, then we can place some demands on developers saying, you know, you have to have a certain percentage of affordable housing here. 
Well, and it would be a win-win situation. And, and by the way, I know that when we talk about brownfield sites, Mike, and a lot of people in their mind's eye are probably uh, thinking of, you know, the old Stelco lands, and, and, and certainly right. they qualify. Absolutely. But it, but it could also be a former gas station. It could be a former dry That's, cleaning yeah. location. I mean, it's 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 land that has been polluted because of uh, what, you know, we did in the past, dumping stuff into the ground. We've, we've got one kitty corner to the radio station here at Main and Longwood in the west end of the city. Uh, it was a gas station site for years and years. It's been vacant for, I think, probably eight or ten years now. Uh, and I'm sure it's probably because of the remediation. The cost to clean up that land is going to be significant. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people do think of brownfields as these old, big old factory sites, and, and those are important. But all of our communities are dotted with particularly old gas stations, but also dry cleaners and others uh, with chemi- heavy chemical use. And, you know, they just sit vacant. And, and people are like, why doesn't somebody do something with this? Well, it's mostly because of the cost of remediation. And look, at let's build the business case for this. Uh, because right now, if that site is sitting vacant, it's it's paying very little taxes at all, okay? Because it's, it's, exactly. it's a dead site. If you can remediate that and you build, as you say, an, another business or affordable housing, or maybe both, I'll build a business on the ground floor and affordable housing above it, all Absolutely. of a sudden, that's, that's a property that's going to be paying taxes. They're going to be paying business taxes. They're going to be paying property taxes. Uh, it's a win-win for governments to do this. The problem is, is municipalities simply don't have the money to be able to do this on their own. They really need help from senior levels of government. Absolutely. You've nailed it, Bill. Uh, and Because the property tax base is, I mean, property taxes, you know, is the most regressive form of taxation, and we're maxing out the property tax base. Upper levels of the government have other ways to raise revenue. And then I would also add to that, Bill, is that it also increases property values for property owners uh, in, in the surrounding areas around these brownfield sites as well, uh, because it's going to, cause that development's going to enhance their property values as well. So it's a, it's a win for the municipality. It's a win for the developer. It can be a win for affordable housing and economic revitalization. And it's a win for all the neighbors who see their property values go up. All right, but that's just if they were to do this, Mike, and I, I do hope, I don't know if it's going to be in the budget, but I mean, that doesn't have to be in the budget. They can introduce this later on, too. That's right. Uh, here's, here's the concern. Uh, this is going to, I think, be, be a very telling I- indication of exactly where this government is. We've already had a couple of instances where the premier himself has mused at the idea about going into the into the green belt to start building, and, yeah. and there's a lot of developers that would just jump at that opportunity. And and the reality here is, first of all, they don't need to. I don't want them to. But there's lots of available land in these sites, and if they would pay to remediate these, then that's where the building can go. You don't need to go green and spread all over the green belt. You can do this internally. Absolutely, that's exactly the case we're making. Uh, and there's been a lot of good studies out showing, making the case that this is the more affordable, more sustainable way to go. Uh, the developers just need some po- support with the brownfield remediation. And, Bill, can I just do a slightly different angle on this, too? Is sure. The other thing we need to learn from this is preventing brownfields in the future. And so one of the things that I was deeply disappointed in, the government just passed Bill 66, and one of the schedules uh, eliminates Ontario's Toxic Reductions Act. And I'm thinking, how can any government that considers itself fiscally responsible get rid of the Toxic Reductions Act? Because that act is there to prevent these kinds of brownfield sites being developed in the future. It's so much cheaper for society, for government, to prevent these types of brownfields in the first place. So not only do we need to clean our existing ones up, we need to make sure we prevent future brownfields. 
Well, look at it, and now we're getting into, again, priorities for governments. And I know, Mike, I know exactly how the government's going to respond to what you just said about removing that tax. They're going to say, we're making it easier for people to do business here in this province. We're going to take a lot of the red tape out of there. This is a health and safety issue. This is this is not red. Absolutely. This is not just an inconvenience. This is this is for the safety of the community, for the planet, for everybody else. Uh, and you know, this it's it's akin to a previous government saying, "Yeah, you know what? We don't really need water inspectors. Let's get rid of them." Uh, we saw how that worked out. I mean, you you've, you've got to make a, a clear distinction here between what might be red tape uh, and, that, that can be eliminated, and what's a health and safety issue. And yeah, there's a cost to that, but there's a cost to not having it too. Absolutely. I mean, I keep telling everyone, you know, I'm all for reducing red tape that, you know, takes a 16-page form and makes it a one-page form. I mean, I, I ran a business for many years. Like, you know, I'm good with the one-page form. The 16-page reform is ridiculous. I don't consider public health and safety, the protection of our water and our farmland, red tape. That's the bottom line. And I tell you what, again, I don't see how this government can consider itself a fiscally responsible government if it's going to remove those kinds of public health and safety protections. 40%. That's a, a telling statistic. I saw in your release here, Mike. 40% yeah. of the country's brownfields are right here in Ontario. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's a lot of old, uh, old industrial sites. Uh, and you know what? Let's clean them up and let's use that for um, revitalization of our local economies and um, affordable housing. It's it's a matter of getting smarter, really. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why these things sat vacant for so long was, first of all, because of the cost, and second of all, nobody would actually buy them because they had to say whoever owned the property was responsible for the cleanup, and and yes. that can get into the millions and millions of dollars. And and the government has they've done some things about this, Mike, that that I think have tried to enhance this. I mean, there are levels of remediation now too. You know, you don't have to do a one hundred percent cleanup if it's another industrial site you can put up there. You do have to do some. But they've, they've put some pretty clear lines in there as to where you can go. So they've made it more attractive. But there's that big, big thing still has to be dealt with right now, and that's the cost of doing whatever remediation needs to be done. Exactly. And there are some tax incentives for uh, remediation that uh, has led to some efforts, but it's simply not enough. The most successful efforts have been when there's been government grants, and that's exactly you know why Hamilton's a leader, because Municipal Council... Uh, put the grant program in for brownfield remediation. and uh, But you know what? First of all, not every municipality has the tax base that's as large as Hamilton's because of the size of the city. And you also have uh, rising property values uh, in Hamilton that not every municipality has. And But at the end of the day, you nailed it earlier, the property tax base can only fund so much. Upper levels of government have so many more revenue tools uh, you know, a whole range of taxes that they can use. And if some of that money comes back to municipalities to remediate these brownfields, that's going to pay off the return on investment from increased property values, increased economic activity, access to affordable housing. There's so many benefits that will come back, and government's going to reap that return on investment. So why not put a little money out there now uh, for, for future economic benefits? But, Mike, why then does the government have a, such tunnel vision when it comes to situations like this? Because, I, I you know, the, the, their mantra is always, well, we can't afford to do that. That's going to cost way too much money. For a, go- a government that promotes to be, you know, business-friendly, don't they understand return on investment? Well, you would think so, but, you know, here's the challenge, Bill, is that, a lot of governments, I mean, you know, the next provincial election is three years away, and so this government's thinking, well, 
what can we do in the next three, well, three and a half or so, what can we do in the next three years to help us get reelected? And brownfield remediation programs oftentimes have a, have a longer timeline than that. And so government's thinking, well, you know, is that really going to help us, help us with reelection? So we need to stop thinking about how we're going to get reelected and start thinking about, well, what are the best policies and programs that put the people of Ontario first, that have a long-term view of how we're going to benefit our communities, make sure our children have a livable, vibrant future. And, you know, that's tough in our current political climate, and it's one of those things, you know, I'm trying as hard as I can to change here at Queen's Park. You've got to get this on the, I, I don't know about getting it on the agenda, because obviously with the majority government, they control that, and, 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 you know, they're going to decide what's going to get debated, et cetera. But, but how, do you, how do you create that discussion, Mike? How do you get people to think about this and talk about this? I, I, I know that Mayor Eisenberger is a, is a strong proponent of what you're suggesting right now. I know Mayor Tory is in Toronto, uh, yep. and it goes right down the list. But it, that, that, those voices don't seem to reach Queen's Park. I'm working on it, Bill. I'm, I'm having conversations with uh, government MPPs, to really try to push this at caucus, I'm I'm speaking out publicly. I've you know put out a few news releases. I've done a number of media interviews, and I can tell you, Bill, every time I do an interview like this, uh, I have mayors, I have city councilors reaching out to me. I have developers reaching out to me across the political spectrum, left, right, and center, saying that makes so much sense. How can we get? How can we make this happen at Queens Park? So I'm not going to give up. I think it's I think it's uh, it's an approach that appeals to conservatives, liberals, and NDP voters. Of course, Green Party voters want to see our communities cleaned up. So I think it's I think it's an idea that crosses party lines, crosses the the political spectrum. And so I'm I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep pushing, and and we'll see what happens. It's it's a political no-brainer, really, isn't it? I would think so. I think that's why so many people from across the political spectrum are like, it is a no-brainer to have a little government support to you know clean up a brownfield, uh, revitalize our community, uh, generate economic activity, increase access to affordable housing, um, increase the quality of life for people uh, in a community. I mean it to me, just seems like a complete no-brainer. Well, and the the housing aspect, I think, is huge here because we already know about the crisis that's going on in most cities, Hamilton included, of course, about the, the, the lack of affordable housing. Uh, and when you talk to people in the private sector, they talk about startup costs. Like, you know, they're, they're more than exactly. willing to come to the table here and see what we can do, but where's the, where's the government help? Where's the help to, first of all, clean up that site? Uh, and and yep. I got to tell you, if you're a bottom line guy, you're a businessman, Mike. Uh, you know, if, if it's going to cost you X number of dollars to clean up a, a brownfield site and then have to build on it, or you can just, you know, lobby the government and say, no, I just want a greenfield site. I just want to go out there. Uh, you know, it's going to probably cost you in the short term a lot less money, and that, that makes it pretty attractive. But brownfield sites most of the time are already serviced. You don't have to pay for sewers extensions or anything because it's already there. Uh, there is a long-term investment here, but you've got to get the government to be on side that and offer those incentives. Yeah, and there's two two important issues here. So one is, I've met. I met. In fact, I just had lunch with a developer in my riding who, you know, is had a very successful career and wants to get back to the community. And he said to me, he's like, you know, I would love to be able to do affordable housing on brownfield sites. Uh, and and he said, you know, if we could just get a little help with the brownfield remediation, he's like, I'm willing to take on the development risk uh, because that I know I can handle. But 
going into the a brownfield site and the, the potential risk and liabilities and the unknowns that exist there, he's like, I just can't do it, and I especially can't do it if we're going to make um, affordable housing a priority of the project. And so, you know, uh, that's why they, they need some help. And on the flip side, on the, the greenfield development, you're right, it's cheaper just to, you know, go in and, 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 and do that. But you know what? We're losing farmland at an unsustainable rate. And, you know, I tell you, a country that can't feed itself is just as insecure as a country that can't defend itself. So we absolutely need to be protecting our farmland. And then the other issue we're dealing with, Bill, is, you know, you've seen a huge increase in, in extreme flooding events in Ontario over the last few years. That's only going to get worse with climate change. And if we keep paving over green space, which is, you know, what allows the earth to absorb all of that excess water, flooding is only going to become a bigger issue. And the costs associated with cleaning up after flooding or building the stormwater management infrastructure to deal with flooding is going to be huge. And so, you know what, there may be, you know, it may be, you know, some short-term low cost the long-term high cost that we're going to pay on that is going to be huge. So, you know, I think it's fiscally responsible for us as politicians to, you know, have a bit of a midterm, long-term view and say we have to protect the public, especially our children, from having to bear the burden of those costs. Absolutely. Green Party leader Mike Schreider. Mike, as always, thanks for the time today and good luck with this. Absolutely, Bill. I'm going to keep pushing away. And, and thanks to Hamilton for your good work on, on this issue. Okay, we'll stay in touch. Uh, Green Party okay. leader, of course, at Guelph MPP, Mike Schreiner. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday on the program, we uh, heard from the Hamilton Halton Home Builders Association and uh, their concerns about an interim control bylaw that the uh, City of Burlington City Council has put in place. Uh, suggesting that obviously it was going to stifle investment, it was going to be problematic and cost uh, developers an awful lot of money. Uh, we wanted to get the other side of the story, and to that end, we're pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Madam Mayor, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Great to be here. Thanks for your uh, interest, Bill. Well, there's a, a couple of things going on here, and, and I understand, first of all, that one of the uh, uh, developers is has asked for an exemption, and you're going to deal with that, I guess, on the 23rd of this month? Actually, no. Uh, there was no motion put on the floor oh, okay. for any exemptions other than the ones that were outlined in the staff report, which don't undermine the intent of the ICB. They were for minor re- renovations, interior renovations, decks, fences, committee of adjustment matters, those sorts of things, which were never intended to be captured by the ICBL. So, uh, so we will be dealing with that on the 23rd. Nobody, there was discussion about exempting. Uh, one particular property, but none of the council members put a motion on the floor, so there's nothing coming to council. I mean, I suppose they could always do it at council, but there, uh, as far as I know, there's nothing coming forward. We that- didn't vote on it at committee, and uh, and there was no support uh, for it to move it. And six six of us voted for the package uh, that the staff had presented, which did not include that additional exemption. That's uh, 1157 to 1171 North Shore, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and we've seen the, the drawings on that. that. But that's still a conceptual thing I, right now, isn't it? Well, it's a formal application. Yeah, of course. Applied for, yeah, an official plan and zoning bylaw amendment. And 
what um, what I thought was very disingenuous of them was when they put their application in, they uh, used the argument in their planning justification report that they were within the urban growth center and the mobility hub, therefore that, that justified their extra density as soon as we put the freeze on uh, development so that we could study our mobility hub and what was appropriate in that area. They said, oh, well, we're not really part of that. So, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. So uh, they certainly got an earful from me on that. Let's let's maybe go over some of the things. That, I don't know if you heard the discussion yesterday, uh, but but and I'm sure you've heard a number of these before from from the the developers and from the the builders themselves, uh, suggesting that this interim control bylaw, and I think you've outlined it and characterized it quite well. It's, it's just pace as you. I think the phrase you used was hitting the pause button. Uh, to, yep. So you can reassess everything. They say that that's, that's going to cost developers money, uh, that they've got pro- projects in the hopper right now and they can't wait around for this and time is money. Uh, and the city is really stifling growth and investment. How, how does the council and how do you respond to that? Well, I think that's fear-mongering. I think that's a misrepresentation of what uh, this actually does. First of all, to put it in context, this represents 1% of Burlington's landmass. There are lots of developments uh, underway and going through in the city. This uh, this just pushes pause, and our staff will continue to receive applications. They will sin- continue to circulate them for technical comments. Uh, what they won't do is make a recommendation until we have new policies in place. And I will say that if our policy framework had been respected in the first place, we wouldn't be here. This has been a, a, I, I'm not just talking about the interim control bylaw, but I'm talking about secondary plans. I'm talking about a number of different things. I mean, councils had some problems trying to wrestle this over the last number, not just recent, but over the last few years. In terms of the uh, the interim control bylaw? Or? No, no, no. I'm talking about the overall plan for downtown, exactly how you want to see it grow and where you want to see it grow. Well, we haven't really been masters of our own fate. In Burlington, we and, and part of that is because of our planning uh, regime in Ontario, which uh, has an Ontario Municipal Board, laterally replaced by the local planning appeal tribunal. Which, if you look closely at it, isn't going to be that much better. And I can explain why in a minute. But as long as you have that system where an unelected, unaccountable body can override a local council vote, uh, two things happen: developers have zero incentive to negotiate with you because they just feel they'll get whatever they want at the board or now the tribunal, and they, historically that's been accurate. So, so the, the incentive to, uh, to work together with staff, councils, and the community has been eliminated by that process. Uh, but you also get councils who, uh, in Burlington's case, who would uh, be very loath to spend money on, um, on legal fees to fight, and that was a pennywise, pound-foolish approach, in my view, because uh, what that meant is we were sitting ducks. All somebody had to do was come to the podium and say, I'm going to threaten to take you to the tribunal. And uh, the council would say, well, you know, what will you settle for? (laughs) And, you know, it it became kind of picking numbers out of a hat. And that's not good planning. And that's not collaborative planning. So, uh, you know, this new council has made it very clear and the community that elected us has made it very clear that that is simply not going to be acceptable anymore, that we need to um, work with the development community, but they have to work with us. They have to listen to the community, listen to our council, listen to staff, and we're not going to roll over. And if we have to fight a few cases at the tribunal to send that message, we'll do it.
But you you have sent a pretty strong message about what you want to see downtown. I'm talking about you collectively on the council. Uh, you've been very vocal about it yourself, even before you you know when you were just the, the council for that area, not just the mayor. Uh, are, are they not listening? Are they simply saying, "Well, we don't really care"? Because they seem to have different ideas. And and uh, as you say, they've they've got this this trump card here. They can simply go to the tribunal. Uh, and and you're right. I've seen this happen not just in Burlington. It's happened here in Hamilton. When I talked to some of the the councilors over the last couple of years here as well. Uh, the whole idea of, of trying to meet those those criteria or to even negotiate a little bit and try for maybe even minor exemptions seems to be gone right now. The other option is that you let me do what I want here or we're going to see you in court. Exactly. And the challenge is that because the council previously has negotiated, uh, you know, given away, in my view, height and density unnecessarily to avoid a tribunal, which was a very short-term uh, gain for long-term pain, and, and I'll give you the classic example, the 23-story building approved across the street from City Hall. Uh, then the application comes in for 26 right across the street. That's to be expected. That you, did, you know, the council, by approving something like, like that, has signaled to the market that that's what's acceptable. That undermines our own plan. Decisions like that undermine our own ability to make future decisions. So, so that uh, additional application was not only uh, predictable, it was inevitable. And then the council decided they were going to only give those folks 17 stories, and so they appealed us to the tribunal to get the same 23 as the folks across the street got. That is also rational and predictable. This is a mess that has been created by the decisions made by the previous council. Um, so until we as a council start standing firm and saying our official plan is not broken, and, and that was a message that was conveyed by the, you know, the previous council and, and administration, and that there's still some that view it that way, that we need to correct that mis- misinformation, the, our plan will get us to our provincial policy growth targets as it is. We don't have to give away one additional unit of density other than what's anticipated currently in our plan to take our share of growth and meet our obligations under provincial policy. So, so that's been, you know, used as a stick to beat us about the head. And, uh, you know, we just need to be stronger to say, you know, I've read, I've read the policies too, and this is not what is required and be willing to stand firm and say, we will meet you at the tribunal and we will mount a vigorous and strong case to defend what we believe is appropriate planning here. But, you know, ultimately, I think what we're going to have to do is remove the mobility hub designation from downtown, remove the urban growth center designation, because as long as those are there, even though we're meeting those targets, those will be used to justify excessive overdevelopment in the downtown. Is, is that is that the, the rationale that they're using? And by the way, I, I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush here. I mean, there's some developers that play ball and, and, and live by the rules and, and, you know, try to accommodate everything with, with some of their stuff. But every now and Absolutely. then you'll get, you'll get some other people that come along like this. And, you, well, we've, you've already talked at length about the Addy development, of course, uh, and, and how council has been, well, basically having to accept that because of the tribunal's decision on this. But but yeah. but therein lies the problem, and you just mentioned the two things about the the provincial designation, the mobility hub, uh, as one of them. Uh, has the province burdened this the, the city of Burlington too much by su- putting these these pressures on these designations that that give uh, developers an idea that that maybe we can go and exceed what these guys are asking us to do? Absolutely, and and you know they didn't become a problem. They didn't they didn't seem to be a problem until we had the recent Addy 
decision and some of the other ones because we are on track to meet our targets. So the the um, the forecasts under uh, both a, a major transit station area slash mobility hub, which our little bus terminal is, and an urban growth center are the same. It's 200 people or jobs per hectare by the year 2031. Right now, according to multiple staff analysis, we're about 174 people or jobs per hectare. We are well on track uh, with uh, development in the pipeline and staff have estimated that um, even the applications on the book right now, if they were developed at 60% of what's being requested, we would meet those targets. So we're fine. We don't. So, so, in 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 a sense, if those if those designations were actually respected, we wouldn't be in have have this problem. But what has happened is they've been used to justify significant overdevelopment, and so you know some of the applications are you know, on a site level basis, working out to, you know, a thousand, two thousand people or jobs per hectare. I mean, it's just wildly beyond what was even envisioned in provincial policy. So I'm not sure how that's justifiable, but that's where we are now. And so until we get those removed, we're going to be in that spot. I understand that obviously you and every other municipality is guided by the the planning act. We get that. But uh, there's another factor that needs to be considered here, and I know you've talked about it in, in the past, uh, is the voice of the people. This is this is your neighborhood, not just where you work, but where you live, uh, the, the area that we're talking about here right now. What are you hearing from the residents? Oh, they're thrilled at the uh, interim control bylaw. I get stopped regularly on the street saying it's about time we started doing something to take back control of our planning to get a citizen's voice back. They did their job in the election by electing five new people, who um, almost all of whom ran on a platform of reigning in overdevelopment. So the citizens have, have spoken. They did their job at the ballot box, and now they're expecting us to uh, to do our job to, to make those steps to get control back. And uh, so they're thrilled. They're, they're delighted. In fact, we get requests from, can you do one over in Aldershot or over in Southeast Burlington where, you know, overdevelopment applications are popping up all over the city. So the citizens would love the whole city right now to be an interim control bylaw. Uh, we've taken a more uh, restrained approach and hoping that we can, um, you know, use the usual uh, just voting not in favor of overdevelopment in other areas, but the citizens are thrilled, and this is exactly what they told us they wanted us to do. One of the other concerns, uh, Madam Mayor, that was raised yesterday was was the length of time this is going to take. I know that staff suggested about a year. Uh, there's some concern how that could go well beyond that. What, what's your read on that? We're going to try and do it in a year. Um, we have the right to extend it for a maximum of a second year uh but um but our goal is to get it done in a year do you foresee any 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 cause that would cause you to actually move forward and, and extend this i mean uh it, it sounds i mean to hit pause and say okay we want to reassess here uh are, are some of the people i've talked to have suggested why why is it even going to take a year it shouldn't take too long at all well if we can do it quicker we will uh, we absolutely will. And so we, we certainly have our work cut out for us. But the great thing is this is a giddy-up, let's-go council. They don't, let, they don't waste any time. They're a bunch of uh, very keen individuals, very thoughtful, who are, um, you know, who want to pretty much do their entire four-year mandate in the first six months. So, you know, we're, we're a keen group, and we'll get it done faster if there's any way possible to do it. What's, what's job one? What do you, what's, what are our first steps here? 
Well, we have to analyze the the policy framework uh, as it exists and get some real get get a truthful conversation going around uh, the fact that we are meeting our targets. Uh, we need to understand the provincial policy changes, and and in fact, the numbers haven't changed. So one of the things that's been said is, you know, our OP is out of date because it was passed in in the 90s with an update in 2008, and, and then the provincial policy changed in 2017. Well, uh, we did a detailed uh, post-places-to-grow intensification study, which led to a detailed precinct plan for the downtown, which delivered the growth targets in 2008. So we're covered there. And the two, two, uh, 2017 changes to the growth plan did not change our growth forecast. So we're fine. So, you know, so some of that fact-setting to dispel some of the the, uh, the mythologies that are out there, that'll be something that we for sure need to do. And then we need to have a conversation around, is a bus terminal with one bus coming from outside our community, which then I suppose constitutes it in, in some people's minds as a regional bus terminal. Uh, we've got the number 11 from Hamilton. Does that constitute a major transit station area, the way the definitions are laid out in provincial policy? And when you read those definitions, no, it doesn't. So so this is the kind of research and analysis that we need to undertake. Is there going to be public consultation? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And and everyone will be invited to that table. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that there are good developers. There absolutely are. I voted for probably just as many applications downtown as I voted against because there are some. Uh, buildings being constructed right now that uh, respected our community, worked with our community, worked with council and staff, and got unanimous approval. And those folks are dismayed by the behavior of some of their members because it, it does create this uh, this combative approach, and it doesn't need to be like that. There's a, I, I sense the, in the discussion here with the home builders especially, uh, there's a certain sense of animosity, I think, that's, that it's, it seems to be prevalent right now. Uh, how, do you, how do you reach out? I mean, obviously you can't, you, you want to coexist, you need partnerships in situations like this. How do you smooth those waters over? Well, I'm I'm happy to uh, to talk with them at any time to, to smooth the waters. I think the challenge, though, is that the situation has been give us what we want or else we'll take you to the board. It's really hard to have a relationship with somebody when when you're dealing with in, with a threat based relationship. And so when we say back to them, well, we're not going to stand for that. That's kind of where the relationship has gotten to. So, uh, you know, we have always been at council and myself, and if you look at my track record on voting for applications, uh, the ones that I have working very uh, closely with the community and developers on those applications to make changes where I've been able to support them, that's my track record. And I'm happy to do that with any developer who truly wants to work with the community uh, and not just say, well, I think this is what it needs to be, and that's the way it is, and if you don't like it, I'll take you to the tribunal. It, it's hard to have a relationship when that's the starting point. It's uh, going to be an interesting process over the next little while. Uh, as always, sure will. Uh, as always, thank you so much for the time today. Mm-hmm. We'll uh, follow this with great interest as this unfolds over the next little while. You're very welcome. Thanks for your interest, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Burlington Mayor Marianne Meadward, of course, explaining the city council's position about this interim control bylaw. And, and I've heard from some of the residents there as well that are quite happy the council's doing this. Uh, some of the developers, not so much.
and uh, some of the ones that uh, that the, the mayor just referenced are uh, very concerned about the holdup and how much money this is going to cost. So it's going to be interesting to see how they respond to this and which, what kind of a role they're going to play in this process. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.